Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, Protecting Project Pulp, and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sofa, everybody. Welcome, hello and welcome to show 341. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Yes, hi everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. A glorious, absolute glorious morning here on the northeast coast of England. I hope it is where you are. I'm going to record this show and then get out for a five-mile walk. Yes, I'm, uh, I've got myself one of those up 24 activity trackers. And, you know, I'm trying to get the old fella fit. And taking in the dogs don't know what's hit them because they're going for all these big long walks every day. So if anyone's got one of those up bracelets, please, you're more than welcome to kind of befriend me and we'll uh, walk together in the virtual world. I'm friends with Gary Main and a good friend called Joseph. And it's actually quite bizarre, you know, because you even see how they're sleeping. And Gary, you're not too, Gary, you're not doing too good, man. Get to bed. Yes, it's uh, it's quite unusual. So, what's coming in today's show? First up, we have sci-fi movie soundtracks by our very own David Raiklin. Then the main fiction is The Firewall and the Door by Sean McMullen. There you go. That is today's show. Today's show. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, in between the fact and the main fiction, I've got a little kind of item to talk about. Hope you will bear with us there as well. So straight off then, David, movie soundtrack, sir. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Sci-Fi Soundtrack. This is where we explore the expanding universe of science fiction, music, sound effects, and the amazing stories and creative people behind the scenes. I'm your host, David Raiklin. Thanks to Tony for making the show possible. We're glad to be aboard the Starship. This time we're going to explore a modest topic, all that ever was is, or ever will be. We're talking about Cosmos, that galaxy eon-spanning special that tells the history of life and the universe and everything with stunning special effects, scientific accuracy, and a brilliant score by Alan Silvestri. You probably know him from science fiction favorites like The Avengers and Back to the Future. Scientific exploration can have the same sense of wonder, excitement, mystery, and boundless imagination that we get in science fiction. Or, to put it in the words of Alan Silvestri himself, the new cosmos aspires in every way to achieve the hopes and dreams of the original cosmos, to capture the thrill, mystery, and excitement of exploring our world from the microcosmic to the macrocosmic. The tools at our disposal have continued to gain depth and power over the years, and therein lies one of the principal differences between the old and the new. Technology grows continuously and allows for an ever-increasing depth of exploration 
but when it comes to the heart, they are identical. And this score is indeed full of heart. It's also in four volumes. I mean, it's a 13-part series that has a lot of music, and I'd say all of it is worth listening to. And some of it's quite exciting and inventive. It represents a bit of uh, new territory, a departure for Alan Silvestri. The music has to support the high and most intellectual concepts, the origin of the universe, the deep mysteries of quantum mechanics, yet the visual effects are spectacular. It has to convey that sense of excitement from writing along a beam of light to watching a DNA molecule replicate, and many of the brilliant and colorful characters in the history of science. The soundtrack for the cosmos of the 80s, The Personal Voyage, by Carl Sagan and his future wife, Andruian, had music from a wide variety of sources, including classical music, Bach, Mozart, Stravinsky, and cool contemporary sounds by Vangelis. And there are people who are still fans of that show and soundtrack. The update is featuring the music of Alan Silvestri. There are bits of great classical music in there, too, but the score has a more cohesive and flowing feel to it, which is really important when you're trying to convey so many ideas and do more involved storytelling, like the reenactments using animation and famous actors like Patrick Stewart are especially effective in the current cosmos, the one that's subtitled A Space-Time Odyssey. One of the reasons all of the classical music in the original cosmos was the selection of music chosen by the International Committee, putting the music and images on the gold disc in the Voyager spacecraft, which is now, as you may know, left the stellar sphere and is now out in the universe, the first human-made interstellar traveler. And Druyan was on that committee, as well as a writer on Cosmos, so the music from the Voyager disc found its way into Cosmos. This is a different kind of approach, more cinematic. Well, enough talk. Let's listen to the main theme from Cosmos. Grand and orchestral, has quiet and intimate moments, and it does a great job of evoking that sense of personal wonder and magic. Main title to Cosmos, A Space-Time Odyssey, music of Alan Silvestri. I like the way he uses solo horn, solo flute, piano to create an intimate, tranquil sense while we're contemplating these mind-boggling and sometimes massively destructive wonders of the universe. And the music does get quite dramatic at times. That's one of the advantages of having a through-composed score. It gives a sense of the flow of the story as well as the individual moments. Now let's turn to Come With Me, an invitation when Neil deGrasse Tyson, our brilliant and generous host on Cosmos, invites us to go on the journey. And I think this is a wonderful example of the mercurial kinds of changes that goes from the microcosmic to the macrocosmic, from the delicate to the brutal. 
Also, the first appearance of prominent electronics. This is one of Alan Silvestri's signatures, is the use of electronic percussion and synthesizer flourishes. Come with me. Come With Me from Cosmos, the soundtrack to the television series hosted by Neil deGrasse Tyson. Now let's listen to the chance nature of existence. This is a theme that goes throughout the series as people are doing things that are intentional, but there's also coincidences. And one of the wonderful feelings that the soundtrack helps convey is that sense of pursuing an idea, trying different possibilities. You're on the chase, on the trail of a great idea, and then you discover it. A moment of triumph, but it's intellectual triumph and insight, a revelation to the nature of existence, the chance nature of existence. Towards the end of this excerpt, you'll hear a bit of what we might call the momentous change or human drama theme. This recurs through the series at moments of great discovery or great drama and is heard in the low trombones and French horns. The chance nature of existence, with gentle pulsing in the woodwinds and synthesizers to depict the gentle pulse of natural processes, and in the brass, you have that dramatic human drama theme. Next, the cosmic calendar theme, the staggering immensity of time, and how do we conceptualize that? Well, the idea of a cosmic calendar goes back for a long, long time, but it was first widely popularized to the public by Carl Sagan in the first cosmos, where he compressed the entire history of the universe, some 14 billion years, into one 365-day calendar. On that scale, a second is many centuries, and the length of human civilization is just a few minutes. When we're contemplating that staggering immensity of time, and the stunning visual effects that bring it alive with all of the history of the universe, including human history, sprayed out on the screen before us, we need the right music. We get a tranquil variation on the main cosmos theme with gentle, steady pulsing in the strings and the piano playing the tune. Gradually, the violins and the brass come in to build the intensity as we pull back. The staggering immensity of time.
The Staggering Immensity of Time, from the Cosmos Soundtrack by Alan Silvestri. Music to Contemplate the Cosmic Calendar. Now one of my favorites from the soundtrack, it's The Ship of the Imagination. This is an imaginary, super cool space and time-traveling craft that can take you to any part of the universe, from the macro to the micro, from the time before the Big Bang to the unimaginable future. It's sleek and reflective, looks like it would be at home in any wonderful science fiction adventure movie, and that's how Helen scores it. It's got the surging pulses of orchestral texture that imply wonder and the driving percussion for energy and impact, the soaring brass, a wonderful melody. It's a summer blockbuster, but the object of it all is truth. Ship of the Imagination, a rollicking adventure cue from Cosmos, a space-time odyssey. Now we're going to contemplate the Virgo supercluster. This segment, the structure of the universe from Earth to our solar system, the stars and our galaxy and the groups and superclusters of galaxies that make up the vast cosmic structure are all explored. And each step is beautifully realized and needs appropriate music and it's great Rocking electronics and pulsing drums are used for space exploration. And then at the moments of revelation, when we finally understand there's cosmic celestial textures in the orchestra and soaring melodies. The Virgo Supercluster, music by Alan Silvestri, for examining the incredible discoveries of our local group of galaxies and the supergalactic clusters and structures that form the known universe. Next, one of the most inspiring cues, and there's a lot of them, in fact, in the four volumes. In fact, by uh, the time you hear this, all four volumes will be available. There's going to be, oh, like 70, 80 cues from all of the 13 episodes of the new cosmos. But this one, Revelation of Immensity, is special because the analogy is made between understanding that we are one with the universe and falling in love. So we have a love theme for the universe. This is from Cosmos by Alan Silvestri. Cosmos, a space-time odyssey, has been showing around the world on Surprisingly Fox. There's a whole story behind that. And National Geographic, it's hosted by the brilliant and charming astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson. It's going to be available, I believe, on June 29th on DVD and streaming. So let's take it out with Revelation of Immensity, Love Theme for the Universe. Thank you. 
that's it for Science Fiction Soundtrack this week. We'll be back next time. We do take requests, so tell us your favorite science fiction, fantasy, video game, TV, soundtracks, and we will play it for you. And I'll find out the inside scoop so you know why it's magic. Contact me, David Raiklin, at cinematicmusic1 at gmail.com. Be sure to check out my blog at www.davidraiklen.com. Music and interviews copyright their respective owners. You know, that's one show, David, thank you so much for that. That's one show that I haven't seen, so... Do you know, passed us by totally, so I'll kind of dig that out <clears throat> by certain methods and means. <laughs> David, big thank you. Thank you so much, sir. So, what I want to talk about before we get into main fiction is donations. You know, <laughs> everyone's turned away, leaving the bar. <laughs> no, in a couple of weeks' time, the idea is I'm going to kind of probably run a month-long campaign to try and raise some funds again for the show and for all the shows, you know, just to make sure we're all right. Last year, as you know, we kind of hit a terrible wall there. And I just want to kind of keep up the enthusiasm. And to be quite honest, it's what I'm finding is, you know, it's people subscribe to kind of, you know, just which is lovely, the kind of the donations and give donations. But you're finding a lot of like, and this is what I'm finding after a year, that credit cards actually expire and this, you know, subscription dies off through PayPal and it's never kind of renewed, you know, and I don't think that's kind of anybody's fault but it'd be nice to kind of you know just give it a little kick start so in, a, in about two weeks time or something i'll be kind of hitting big time if that's all right to talk about donations and the help with so there we go you've, you've been prepped come on back to the bar are we so first up or next up is the firewall and the door by sean mcmullen i'll give you a little heads up about sean Sean sold his first stories in the late 1980s and become one of Australia's top science fiction and fantasy authors. In the late 90s, he established himself in the American market and his work has been translated into Polish, French, Japanese and other languages. The settings for Sean's work ranges from the Roman Empire through medieval Europe to cities of the distant future. His work is a mixture of romance, invention and adventure while populated by strange but dynamic characters. His novelette, Eight Miles, was runner-up in the 2011 Hugo Awards, and his next novelette, 90,000 Horses, won the Analog Readers Award in 2013. Stories narrated by Logan Waterman. Logan has a degree in technical theatre from California State University and has worked in many theatres, large and small, professional and amateur. He's also worked for Apple Computers, sold hot tubs and comic books, prepared court documents. He's taught sword fighting at the stage and ran light, lights for a local band until they broke up. He currently works for a legal system, watches a lot of science fiction television, good lad, listens to a lot of podcasts, even better, and reads a lot of science fiction. That's the main thing there, Logan. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present... The Firewall and the Door by Sean McMullen. Living room news is somehow timeless. Roman slaves once came home and repeated what they had heard in the forum to their masters. 18th century families read pamphlets collected in the coffee houses. 
a century later it was newspapers, then came radio, television, Twitter, T-Share, Overview, and ComSpeak. Now we have the slightly retro Holovista, which is popular because it can be watched as a family, if the family is willing. Entanglement technology had brought the final frontier as close as the living room. All we had to do was get an unscrewed probe out to wherever was to be explored, and the entanglement telepresence established in its computers would provide practically instant communication. Everything was easy. Too easy. People took the wonders for granted until something went spectacularly wrong. I was in the living room with my family when the Argo made its flyby of the double star Alpha Centauri. My wife was working on her universal data pad, but was looking up at the Holovista every so often. My 13-year-old son was sitting with arms folded tightly, doing his best to look sullen. Don't see why we're watching, Jason muttered. The Argo's been trashed by an asteroid. It collided with a speck of dust the size of a bacterium, I replied. And what's the fuss about? The Argo was traveling at a tenth the speed of light when it hit. Huge loads of energy were released. What's that mean? Very large bang. So it's trashed. It's damaged, but it's still working. This is one of the most significant events in human history, so we're going to watch it as a happy family. I'm not happy. Then we'll just watch it as an unhappy family. Now shut up and watch. No need to be authoritarian with Jason, said my wife. Teenagers are pack animals, I replied. I'm making sure he knows he's not leading this pack. Now, now, dear, try not to act like a magistrate when you're at home. I knew they wouldn't share my enthusiasm for the Argo. I was a child when the unmanned starship had been launched, and I'd followed its progress closely ever since. Inevitably, I had the childhood dreams of joining the Argo's crew, and in theory they were realistic dreams. The members of the crew lived very ordinary lives in California, and operated the spacecraft through entanglement telepresence circuitry at the Mission Control Building on Berkeley campus. My dreams had been shared by hundreds of millions of other children, but there were no vacancies. In the 47 years of the mission, not one of the crew had died or retired. The best career opportunities were in law when I had to start making decisions about earning a living. My fascination with technology could not be smothered by four years of legal studies, however, so I specialized in spacecraft accident investigation. The Argo was a spacecraft, and there had been an accident, so now I was following the events with informed professional interest. The holographic image of Marie Jackson, the Argo's control captain, now materialized a few feet in front of us. Beside her was a journalist who was about fifth Jackson's age. Can you tell the viewers a little bit about the Argo? The journalist began. How many thousands of times has she answered that question, I wondered. The Argo was built in space, orbiting Saturn, said Jackson, doing a good job of seeming neither bored nor exasperated. It was launched in the year 2200 and spent ten months accelerating to nine percent of light speed. It then traveled unpowered for the next 47 years. It was meant to loop around the star Centauri A and use its gravitational field to change direction. It would then travel on for another 200 years to its next flyby, the red dwarf star Gliese 581. But isn't the Argo exploring the Centauri stars? Yes, but the Gliese and Centauri systems are in roughly the same direction, so the Argo was meant to explore both. The Centauri stars are the payoff for the people who built the Argo, because it's arrived in our lifetimes. But now there's been an accident and it can't go any further? There's been an accident and it can't change direction, said Jackson with her eyes closed. One does not slow down from a tenth of light speed just by pressing on a brake pedal. Jason was sitting with his mouth open, quite literally drooling at the image of the very pretty journalist. 
chosen for being decorative, I observed. You're just saying that because you're jealous, exclaimed Jason. The journalist looked blank as a cue device within her ear briefed her on the next question. But this is not the first star you've explored, she said. That's right, said Jackson. Eleven months ago, we passed within a quarter of a light year of the red dwarf Proxima Centauri. That's the nearest star to the sun. But the Argo didn't actually go there? No, but our telescope did detect flares erupting on Proxima's surface. The light from those flares is still on its way here and will not arrive for another three years. That means scientists can do some fascinating experiments that test the laws of physics. The journalist looked blank again. Clearly her ideas of what was fascinating did not extend to experiments involving the speed of light. An unseen operator briefed her on the next question. So now the Argo is going to fly past a planet? She asked. The Argo released a little probe called Harpy-1 a few weeks ago, said Jackson, and their images were replaced by a long, sleek cylinder with a cluster of instruments at one end. This probe will do the flyby in the Centauri system's only Earth-type planet. That happens in six minutes. Society had been changing quickly and radically as the Argo was being built late in the 22nd century. The Argo was also called the Centauri Unity Endeavor. It was a huge project spanning all the governments of the solar system and symbolizing their ability to work together. It took a decade to complete, was the most powerful machine ever built, and was very, very expensive. Too expensive. Worst of all, it was expendable. By 2200, to be expendable was to be ideologically unsound. Even when the Argo was finished and being fueled with ice from Saturn's rings, there were petitions to halt all work on it and transform the crowning glory of human exploration into a monument of waste prevention. This monument was supposed to remind humanity that it was never too late to stop waste. In spite of unresolved court injunctions, the Argo was nevertheless launched on time. The legality of that was challenged, and some of the litigation continues to this very day. The average human could reasonably expect to live to 130, so most of the Argo's builders would still be alive for the Centauri flyby. They could see some results from their work. Because there would be no more interstellar missions, this was humanity's only chance to explore anything outside the solar system. The mission had been for the Argo itself to pass close to Centauri A and use the planet's gravity as a slingshot to swing around through 67 degrees. It would then travel another 18 light-years to Gliese 581. The star had six planets, and its flyby would be the spectacular climax of the mission. Of course, none of us would leave to see that. It was our gift to future generations. Once the Argo's nuclear fuel and reaction mass had been spent, a probe the size of a pickup truck detached from the main part of the spacecraft and drew ahead using ion engines until it was traveling just one mile a second faster. There was substantial risk that the nuclear drive and its tanks might hit a scrap of cosmic debris and explode, so it was not safe to be near. The unmanned probe that was the real Argo was thin, tiny, and streamlined, and had been built tougher than an armor-piercing artillery shell. It had a far better chance of avoiding or surviving any impact. My wife looked up from her UDP, thought for a moment, then spoke. 21st century economists would have called the Argo really bad value for money, she said. She was an economist, at least in the sense that she lectured on economic history at London University. She had no interest in space exploration, but every so often she tried to keep me company by saying something to show she was paying attention. Exploration should be done for its own sake, I replied. But they spent hundreds of trillions of dollars just to streak through two systems at a tenth light speed. Why bother? True, why bother, I sighed, maybe too theatrically.
The people who think like you have won. The Argo has become the first and last starship ever. She returned her attention to her UDP, embarrassed by being right yet slightly venal. Can I go now? asked Jason. No, I snapped. I've got swimming training tomorrow. You just want to tell a presence with Julia Gould. We're just good friends. Good, then you can stay and watch the wells fly by. It's the real highlight of the evening, and, and when you're older, you'll thank me for making you stay. Wells had been discovered by Earth-based telescopes long before the Argo was built. It was a rocky planet orbiting Centauri B, slightly smaller than Earth, and right on the outer edge of the star's habitable zone. It was the only Earth-type planet in the Alpha Centauri system. Because it was a slightly bigger, warmer version of Mars, a spacebook campaign had begun for it to be named after one of the thousands of science fiction authors who had written novels involving Mars. A hundred years after his death, the author of The War of the Worlds had won this contest. Control Captain Jackson and the journalist were replaced by an image of Wells at the center of our living room holovista. It began as a reddish spot, but this quickly became a half-moon shape. Over the course of the few seconds, it expanded into a red, green, and white disk about a yard across. Then it reverted to a half-moon that dwindled back into a red dot as Harpy One left it behind. The encounter had taken all of 15 seconds. Is that all there is? asked Jason, his arms still tightly folded. That was what a human would see, I replied. Obviously, you're a human. Jason scowled. Like many teenagers of 13 or 14, he disliked being a member of the human race and considered my words to be an insult. He was wearing his newly fashionable nerve servo contact lenses, the kind with cat's eye pupils. They actually contracted and dilated and were meant to make him seem like some sort of feline predator. He also had a pair of prosthetic vampire fangs, but that sort of accessory had been fashionable for 200 years. So, uh, what else were we supposed to see? Asked my wife, breaking the silence. That... I said. The largest image of Wells had been projected to us to examine at our leisure. Imagine Mars, slightly larger, slightly warmer, and quite a lot wetter, but with no craters. There were streaks and patches of olive green and tracts of grayish blue that were at small seas. The polar caps were huge, as if an ice age were gripping the planet. There were also cloud systems, but they were thin and stringy. A lot of the surface is red desert, but there are areas of green, some unseen planetary scientist was explaining excitedly. Spectral analysis already shows it to have chlorophyll, but not quite as we know chlorophyll. The little seas and lakes are obvious, and rivers are visible because vegetation is growing beside them. This is not just an Earth-like planet, it's another Earth! The air pressure was barely that of very high mountains on Earth, but it wasn't enough to support liquid water. Well seemed to be a planet made up entirely of tundra grasslands, shallow swampy seas, and icy wilderness. It was the sort of place that would tolerate humans rather than welcome them. What about aliens? The journalist asked. We got a view of part of the night side, the scientist replied. But there were no lights from cities. If there are any intelligent aliens, they would still be hunter-gatherers. He went on to make the usual comments about what a pity it was that there would be no follow-up probe and this would be all we would ever learn about the planet Wells. The Wells flyby had been timed to be part of a larger show. While Harpy 1 had been flashing past the planet, the Argo was approaching Centauri A. More accurately, two chunks of the Argo were approaching the star. Three days earlier, there had been a collision, and the Argo had been split. So the Argo just collided with a bit of dust, and that was enough to blow it apart? asked Jason. Yes. Couldn't happen. The Argo was traveling at 9% the speed of light, I said, with my hands over my eyes. That means the kinetic energy released was equal to that of a large bomb. We were lucky the Argo survived at all. 
But it didn't survive. It was blown to bits. It was only blown into two bits. The important bit is still working. How? It has multiple fallback layers. What's that mean? Well, think of a medieval knight. He had a shield to stop arrows, but if any got past that, he had armor. Some arrows can pierce armor, so under the armor was cloth padding. Any arrow that got past all that was going to be going a lot slower, so it had less of a chance of killing him. The Argo is similar. It can take a lot of damage and keep working. So it's okay. Yes and no. The Argo and its armor were blown apart from each other by the collision. Unprotected, the Argo can't pass close enough to Centauri A to change course for Gleesey 581. Why not? Because stars are hot, and the heat would melt it. I snapped, almost taking his bait and yelling. Get your act together, Jason. You're not that stupid. Don't damage Jason's self-esteem, said my wife without looking up. Hang on, so the Argo was pointed to go that close to the star. Won't it still go there and melt? Asked Jason. So you are paying attention. Well, asked an intelligent question, and I'm still recovering from the shock. Do I get an answer? There were six more harpy probes on the Argo, each with a rocket engine. The control crew in California fired the rockets of the probes without releasing them. This changed the Argo's course, taking it farther away from Centauri A. But that means it won't swing around to point at the other star. That's right. Then why bother saving it? Because of what may be out there that we can't see as yet. The Argo's power plant is related for 300 years of operations, and 250 of those years are still left. It may be pointed at empty space, but who knows whether space is entirely empty. The flyby of Centauri A was very poor as a hollow vista spectacle, because there was nothing to see from the probe. The Argo's telescope, instruments, and sensors had all been put into lockdown, and all equipment that could be spared was turned off. With so much heat pouring into the probe from the star, the instruments could not be allowed to generate any more heat than could be helped. Computer graphics had replaced the imagery from onboard cameras, and an internal temperature graph took up half our whole vista. Two tracks, representing the Argo and its shield, were edging closer and closer to Centauri A. Ironically, the shield was still on the original course and would swing around the star and go on to reach Gleesey system in 200 years. The Argo was now two million miles further out. Strange to think the shield will survive the flyby better than the Argo, I said. Jason grunted. He was interested, but trying hard to disguise the fact. Meanwhile, the Argo has speed on its side, and it'll not be in the super-hot zone for very long, I continued. If we're lucky, nothing important will fail before it starts cooling down. But there's nothing I had to look at, said my wife. Nothing we know about, I replied, trying hard to stay optimistic. For reality entertainment, the flyby had little drama. The temperature peaked a minute after the closest approach, but it was apparently something that had to do with heat dispersal and was expected. Very little failed because even in the Argo's internal equipment had been built to survive extremes. Someone opened a bottle of champagne and began handing out glasses. Okay, now I know we don't have much to celebrate, Jackson began as she raised her glass to toast the Argo's survival. Control, Captain! I had no idea who shouted, but the whole Vista immediately switched to a screen projection of three words and a number. The message had not come from Argo. Firewall survived. Acknowledge. 41. There was the sound of breaking glass as some of the control crew dropped their champagne in their haste to get back to their consoles. I noticed my wife and son were suddenly giving the whole of us to their complete attention. After what seemed like ages, Jackson spoke to the journalist. The backup processor to the shield has come back to life, she said breathlessly. What does that mean? The journalist asked. The shield's computer survived. It's on course to Gleesey 581. But all the instruments are on board the Argo, she pointed out. 
The shield has an entangled processor, a few instruments, a small telescope, batteries, solar panels. It can do a survey of Gleesey after all. We just need to check its course. Can't you focus on the signal that came in and do a Doppler analysis? Suddenly the cat was out of the bag. The journalist had been acting dumb, but in the excitement of the moment she'd forgotten herself and started asking intelligent questions. The message that came through the shield's entanglement circuitry. That's not directional, said Jackson. I'm having Argo's main telescope activated and swung around to focus on where the shield will be. It should be visible. The surface is highly reflective. The image from the telescope was put on the screen. It was blank. Too far? asked the journalist. The shield should be a faint star at the center of the divided crosshairs. It's transmitting, so it's still in one piece. Well, and where is it? asked the journalist. It has to be there. Maybe the coating on the shield darkened because it flew so close to Centauri A. Try scanning on a course intercepting Centauri B in six days, said a male voice off camera. What was that, Lieutenant? asked Jackson. Scan for Centauri B intercept at around 4% of C, said the unseen officer. The shield did an arrow break in Centauri A's atmosphere. There was a short, razor-sharp silence. This was Hall of Vista reality at its most intense. Do it! Jackson finally shouted. Moments later, the telescope had been repositioned. At 15 million miles, the image had to be blown up so much that the display was just a cluster of a half dozen square pixels. But there it was. The shield had lost velocity equal to nearly 5% of light speed and was on a course to the second largest of Centauri's suns. Arrest that man, shouted Control Captain Jackson, pointing somewhere off camera. Arrest Lieutenant Ashcroft! The Hola Vista image winked out and was replaced by some talking head anchorman. He apologized for the break in transmission. My family and I were still babbling to each other about what might have happened when my UDP sounded. Hello, Harper speaking. Mackerson here. Andy, have you been watching the Argo flyby? Yes, yes, it's unbelievable. Are you willing to preside in an establishment hearing for the Argo case? Me? I gasped stupidly. They asked for me? I mean... I, I, who asked for me? Is that a yes or a no? He's offering you a chance to be part of the Argo mission, screamed a voice in my head. Say yes, you idiot. Say yes. Yes, yes, of course. You'll be at Heathrow Suborbital in 15 minutes. I'll bring a tilt fan to your house. Your briefs, itinerary, and clearances will be downloaded to your UDP. I now learned what is meant by instant fame. Within a few minutes, Mackerson's contract security guards had arrived and turned the house into an exclusion zone. Not far behind them were the journalists, bloggers, agents, promoters, paparazzi, tweeters, tutors, Facebook frontals, and even an old-style journalist. I had gone from being a respected but obscure magistrate to an inner-world celebrity in less time than it takes to have a rushed breakfast. Jason discovered that his Facebook posting, Dad's Got the Argo Case, had 7,000 likes. I was winced up from my front steps to a tilt-fan shuttle while hundreds of cameras focused on me. Mackerson helped me through the hatch, then the tilt fan spun about elegantly and sped off for the spaceport. You know what I'm going to ask again, I said as I slumped into the seat facing him. You're going to say, why me? Very good, so why me? Politics, experience, jurisdiction, the fact that you're British, but mostly because you specialize in spacecraft accident investigation. There are plenty of others with that sort of background. The suspect is American. If the alleged crime took place on American soil, and American law works on performance justice. America contributed only a fifth of the cost of the Argo mission, however, and several of the other nations and worlds don't use performance justice. That all means compromise. 
There must be a public establishment hearing on American soil by an independent magistrate to establish the nature of any felony. You'll give it an intersystem flavor. And after that, your findings will be handed over to the American Criminal Court. He shepherded me through the airport's immigration, customs, and security checks. The suborbital took off. I threw up into a mask bag after we went weightless because my anti-nausea caps were still at home, along with the travel pack I'd forgotten to bring. An attendant floated over the dermal, and somewhere above Greenland, I decided I felt well enough to begin reading the briefs. The case was a nightmare maze of psychology, cyber identity, physics, engineering, astronomy, communications, and was technically beyond most legal people. I had spent 30 years in this field, however, and was used to dealing with new, complex, and even bizarre precedents. I was also well known for being able to think on my feet, so this was a big plus. Events would still be unfolding even as the hearing took place. Some of them would be doing so four and a third light years away. Within two hours of answering my UDP in London, I was being met and briefed in San Francisco in daylight. By my second sunset for the day, I was being assigned an office in the same building as Mission Control. Before I could even sit down, a legal clerk escorted me to an auditorium that had been set up as a performance court. So you're the British magistrate? She said as we walked. Yes, Britain's main export is legal opinions these days, I began, but she cut me short. Know about performance hearing procedures? I'm qualified to preside in them, but this is my first. The Westminster system does not recognize them. Then listen carefully. I have to tell you this so I can sign you off as briefed. In this country, the public has a right to an opinion. The performance hearing is meant to let the public hear from all parties involved in plain language so that it can form its opinion. Some people call it a circus, but we find it works better than anything else. Except in this case, the public is everyone, not just Americans. You've got it. Everyone paid for the Argos. They're all stakeholders. As stakeholders, we have to treat them as honorary Americans. Performance justice had been developed after the old system had developed some bizarre verdicts. Rape victims had been sued for becoming pregnant. Vandals had sued property owners for injuring themselves on glass that they had smashed. And bank robbers had sued banks for invading their privacy during holdups by recording everything with security cameras. The law had been so detached from public opinion that the public had lost patience. Public opinion was now factored into the law. I took my seat and faced the hollow cameras. Firstly, I wish to remind you this is not a court of law, I said for the benefits of the hollow audience. This is an establishment hearing under interworld protocols of 2230 and is meant to provide an overview of events while they are fresh in everyone's memory. Prosecutions may follow, however, so I must advise you all to stay as close to the facts as your memories permit. I call Control Captain Emily Jackson to the stand. Jackson was sworn in. She maintained the careful, attentive, but angry expression of a victim. Doubtlessly, a stylist had given her some intensive coaching while I had been vomiting above Greenland. Now, as I understand it, the Argo collided with something three days ago, I began. Is that correct? Yes, yes, everything was on the hollow vista, she said impatiently. Haven't you been watching? I'm collecting statements from witnesses, control captain, I explained. Establishment hearings are meant to establish an image of the case for the public. I shall also remind you that I am a presiding magistrate in a legal hearing. One more challenge to my authority, and you will be charged with contempt. The console before me showed 9 million Facebook dislikes and 11 million likes. The public that was bothering to vote was marginally on my side. Apologies, your honor, Jackson replied. I've been under a lot of stress. Now then, was there any warning of danger, I continued. Meteors showing up on the radar, that sort of thing? 
The Argo was traveling at almost 17,000 miles per second, Your Honor. The meteor that crippled it could only have been seen under a microscope. So there was no threat detected? There were only general indications of threat and risk. Radar picked up some asteroid-sized bodies near our flight path. The biggest was 50 miles in diameter. We got a high-resolution pictures of that one on the way past. And your control crew voted to call it Jackson? That's correct, Your Honor. Display the images. The clerk for the court put a series of pictures and graphs onto the tabletop hollow vista beside the witness stand. Then a rotating hologram of the asteroid appeared. It could have been one from our own system, and I would never have known. So you discovered asteroids, I prompted. And where there are asteroids, there's also dust. Yes, Your Honor. I put the Argo on yellow alert and canceled all VIP telepresence tours as soon as the first asteroid was detected. How long after going into yellow did the Argo hit the grain of dust? I asked. Five hours, Jackson replied. So you were prepared as well as could be expected. Yes, the Argo has many fallback layers. Please tell me what happened immediately after the strike, I said. The readouts in mission control went blank and the alarms went off. All telemetry through the entanglement link ceased. How did the control crew react? People shouted that it was a particle strike. Some of them used some politically insensitive words. And did your contingency and recovery officer, Lieutenant Ashcroft, did he do anything suspicious? No. Well, just what did he do? Nothing. A virtual of the lieutenant was in one of the Argo's computers. It was meant to take over and restore systems after any strike. So what did you do back in mission control? I gave orders to turn off the alarms, release media statements, and ordered a coffee from catering. Nothing else. The entanglement link was out, and the Argo was light years away. We could only wait for a pull signal. That came after three hours. Then we linked straight back into the Argo systems. Describe what you found. There was a lot of blank out in the data storage arrays, and the Ashcroft virtual was dead. The comms link had been restored from a timed contingency routines. While we were starting repairs, I saw the shield's computer and circuits were all dead. I used the camera on the robotic maintenance crawler to get a direct view of the probe's condition. It showed the shield section had been smashed away. When I ordered a search with radar unit and main telescope, this is what we saw. Jackson pulled up an image of the ship pulling away from the Argo. It looks undamaged, I said. I assumed the damage was on the other side. Now I realized the explosive separation bolts had been fired. There had been no collision. Was there any communication between the shield and the Argo? When we transmitted the kill switch key to take manual control of the shield, all we got was the invalid key response. That indicates catastrophic damage. Did you try to pursue? The instrument section of the Argo has no ion thrusters. They were built into the shield. We decided to use the rockets of the Harpy probes to push Argo farther away from Centauri A and at least salvage something of the mission. Thank you, Control Captain. That will be all for now. Ashcroft was escorted to the stand. It was the first time I'd seen him, because he'd managed to stay out of Holovista coverage. He had a closely shaven scalp and a bushy white beard. It looked to me as if his head were on upside down, and I had to stifle the urge to laugh. Lieutenant Charles Ashcroft, you were in the Mission Continuity and Disaster Recovery Officer until you were arrested, I said, looking up from my UDP. That's right, Your Honor. His accent was West Coast. Ashcroft was the same age as Jackson, and the difference in their rank was due to the fact that Ashcroft was extremely good at what he did and was not interested in learning to do those other things that got one promoted, like handling difficult staff, raising funds, and flattering important people with influence. Please describe your role in the Argos crew using your own words, I said. There's an emergency 
processor and the shield where a virtual image of my consciousness is continually mirrored. If the main entanglement link shuts down, the emergency circuit activates Ashcroft Virtual. It's completely autonomous and can recover a functional subset of the Argo systems unless the damage is catastrophic. Enough, slow down. I said, I was already familiar with this type after three decades of technical hearings crammed with geeks trying to blind me with science. You say your mind was mirrored into a processor on the Argo, so a virtual image of your consciousness was actually aboard the probe itself. Am I correct? Ashcroft suddenly looked uneasy. I was the sort of legalist pendant he despised, yet I was throwing his jargon back at him in coherent English. He cowered visibly as if suddenly aware a predator was near, and that he was small, fluffy, and delicious. You're, you're correct, sir. That is your honor, he said sheepishly. And how many others have their virtuals mirrored above the Argo? Well, just me, your honor. So while the Argo was in recovery mode, your Ashcroft virtual had sole command, I asked. Yes, your honor. I've made a study of the Argo systems, I said, as casually as I could, because the nature of disaster is by its very definition unexpected, there was a manual emergency switch available to your virtual. If an emergency that could not possibly have been anticipated were to have taken place and cut off communications, Ashcroft Virtual could assess the situation and take action. Until now, Ashcroft had not actually admitted to sabotaging the probe. However, he looked about as guilty as a dog on a kitchen table with the remains of a chicken pie. I did not know why he was delaying the inevitable, but I decided to give him a nudge. I put it to you, Lieutenant Ashcroft, that your virtual could easily have activated a meteor strike simulation routine, and so cut off the Argo from mission control. After that, Ashcroft virtual had sole command of the probe. It would have been easy to fire the release charges to separate the shield of the Argo from its electronics, power plant, and scientific instruments. Oh, yeah, but there you're wrong. The onboard logs would have showed the emergency was declared before the separation charges were fired. So you fired the charges first. I... His hesitation said everything. He was proud of how well he'd covered his trail, so he wanted someone to know. Just as dragons have a soft spot in every fairy story, so too does every geek who's achieved some illegal technical masterstroke. I suppose I can admit that now. So the Argo collided with a speck of dust at a tenth light speed that would look identical to the separation charges being fired. You wanted to keep that part secret until after the Wells and Centauri A flybys. You're good, Ashcroft conceded. I could charge you with contempt for that remark, I said sternly. Remember that if you were attempted to make another... Uh, sorry, Your Honor. That earned me 17 million Facebook dislikes and 15 million likes. Public opinion was divided, but beginning to favor Ashcroft. Most viewers were still not voting. What is the significance of Firewall? I asked. Uh, the shield is no longer just a part of the Argo. Its name is the Firewall. The Firewall? Your name for it? The Firewall is the name my virtual calls it. During a break, I was shown a mock-up of the Argo in a laboratory within the mission control building. The mock-up was used to diagnose faults of the real starship and try and work out solutions. The Argo's shield was shaped like a sleek, hollow axe head. Any fleck of dust that struck it would just give a glancing blow. Of course, at 9% of light speed, even glancing blows were liable to be catastrophic, but it was the best design anyone could think of. The list of charges that was developing against Ashcroft would be good for decades of litigation. 
Overall, he had destroyed intersystem property costing $400 trillion and worth even more in replacement value. Every media outlet in the solar system was linked to the auditorium's cameras, and I knew that my face would be instantly recognizable by pretty well everybody for the rest of my life. According to my UDP's scan of Spacebook, Ashcroft was currently the most liked and the most disliked man in the solar system. I faced the holocameras, trying not to think of how many pairs of eyes were behind them. Now, summing up the findings so far, Lieutenant Ashcroft has admitted to plotting to take control of the Argo ever since the mission began. He knew that Argo Virtual would be in control of the Argo after any collision, real or simulated. Aboard the shield was enough computer power to support his virtual, so Ashcroft Virtual detached the shield. When the Argo went into lockdown for the Centauri A flyby, he fired the shield's ion thrusters and put it on a course that would go deep into the star's atmosphere for an extreme arrow break. I must emphasize that it was the Ashcroft Virtual that hijacked the shield while Argo was cut off. Quite probably Ashcroft Original was an accomplice, however, because he had known the shield's course. I called Jackson back to the stand. She looked very angry. In fact, barely in control. Anger was always a dangerous emotion to display to Facebook voters, as it generally attracted more dislikes than likes. She was not on trial, but a high dislike-to-like ratio would affect her reliability index as a witness. I started with the physics of the flyby. So instead of just swinging close to the Star Centauri A to change clothes for the Gleesey system, the shield fired its ion thrusters and did an extreme arrow break deep into the star's atmosphere. There it lost over half its velocity and changed course for Centauri B, where it will do another arrow break, then fly on to the planet Wells. 900 million like, said someone in the gallery, and there were titters of laughter. Order! I shouted. One more reference to Spacebook activity and I will have the offender removed and charged with contempt of court. I waited for any further comments. Nobody said anything. Control Captain. I gather that the Harpy One probe returned useful images and data for about 15 seconds during the flyby of Wells. It showed that the planet has polar caps, clouds, small seas, a magnetic field, a breathable atmosphere, and vegetation. Yes. Was that enough? I don't understand the question, Your Honor. I'll put a fictitious proposition to you. Just say you were the head of NASA back in the 20th century. Say you had an extremely tight budget, but the first flyby of Mars had revealed ruined cities. Would you abandon exploration of the rest of the solar system indefinitely and concentrate on Mars? I... no, I would not, she said slowly. Three moons of Jupiter turned out to have subterranean oceans that supported primitive life forms. That's significant, too. You would not have known that at the time, but I know it now. The Gleesey System's world may have wonderful secrets we can't even begin to dream of, and whatever the Harpies would have discovered about them would have been all that would ever be discovered unless we commit to interstellar exploration again. The same might be said about Wells. With respect, Your Honor, that is not a judgment that I would make. Secretly, I sympathized with Jackson. The generation that followed hers mine, had canceled the interstellar program and confined us to the solar system. Everything we would ever see directly beyond our little corner in space would be through the cameras of the Argo and its fleet of harpy drones. You may stand down, Control Captain. That will be all. Several technical experts now testified and explained the situation on the firewall. Aboard the shield, there was a block of entangled circuitry linked to a block in mission control. 
Here signals could be exchanged, but at a bitrate so slow that even most computer historians were not aware it had ever existed. 110 baud. It was not even much better than Morse code and dated to the 1950s. An acknowledgment had been sent to the Shield's first message, but Ashcroft Virtual ignored all subsequent questions that were sent to it. Every hour it sent the same message, each time with a number appended. Performing repairs, stand by, 41. The value of the number was slowly increasing. It defined the amount of damage to Ashcroft Virtual. The firewall was very tough, but it had not been designed for prolonged and hyper-extreme deceleration. In spite of the shield's installation, the temperature must have reached hundreds of degrees Celsius internally. There was memory loss in the data and processor latencies, so Ashcroft Virtual would be rearranging the surviving data that defined itself, restoring what it could before going through the same trauma again at Centauri B. It had just six days to restore 59% of itself from contingency latencies. Back on Earth, Ashcroft had by now admitted to conspiring with his Virtual aboard the Argo to hijack the mission. I could not pass judgment on what had been done or sentence him, but I could allow him to explain himself on Spacebook. At the time of the Argo's launch, the taxpayers of humanity had each paid $8,000 a year for 10 years to get it built and fueled. That was 1% of the average income. Many of them were still alive and were seeing their money squandered. How many likes and dislikes would Ashcroft get? Marshal of the Proceedings. Bring Lieutenant Ashcroft to the stand. Ashcroft was led back. He was affecting a meticulously resigned expression known as the martyr faith. He had admitted guilt, but he wanted the Spacebook voters to know he had noble motives. A high score of likes was his only hope. Lieutenant Ashcroft, what do you say in response to the declaration of Control Captain Jackson? I asked. I don't agree with her. Earth-like planets come first. This was always my intention to to arrow-break the Argo's shield through the atmospheres of the two Centauri stars and put it into orbit around wells, even though it was not designed for the purpose, even though $400 trillion would be wasted. The mission was not wasted. Humanity has had flybys of two stars, a planet, and several asteroids. The Argo will fly on through another 20 light-years of space. Who knows what's out there to discover? This has not been lost. Gleesey has been lost, and you have wells in its place. The firewall is damaged. It may not survive the arrow break through Centauri B. It's not designed for extremes like that. That doesn't matter. A lot of leading-edge work has been done with machines that were designed for something else. In the earliest years of the space age, the only rockets available for exploration were designed to carry bombs. In spite of that, they were also used to launch satellites, send probes to other worlds, and put the first humans in space. Machine usefulness is determined by machine capability, not what the machine was designed for. So you gambled that the shield could take well over 10,000 Gs for two or three minutes? 10,000 Gs is no problem. Back in the early 21st century, the Japanese tested probes whose electronics could take 8,000 Gs and still function. The Argo shield and its equipment were built to handle more than that. And the extreme temperatures? I asked. The Argo was to pass very close to Centauri A, so the shield was designed to protect it from the expected temperatures. It was also over-engineered to cope with anything worse. It will survive Centauri B. By now, Ashcroft had 900 million likes and 6,000 dislikes. Here was absolute admitted guilt welded to overwhelming public support. I was very relieved I would only be a witness at his criminal trial. 
Lieutenant Ashcroft, I am obliged to inform you that you will certainly be charged with a crime involving the single largest damage bill in all of history. I began. And he may get out of jail before the next ice age, called someone in the gallery. Marshal, remove whoever said that from the public gallery, take them to the local authorities, and recommend a charge of contempt. There was a pause in proceedings while the offender was taken into custody. I looked down at my screen. The youth had just gotten over 100 million likes in 12 seconds, and 700 million dislikes as well. Ashcroft certainly had public sympathy in spite of what he had done. In the next six days, Firewall and Ashcroft Virtual will reach Centauri B, I asked Ashcroft. What will happen? I can't speak for my virtual anymore. Please explain. Ashcroft Virtual is no longer me, said Ashcroft. The number transmitted from the firewall every hour represents the amount of contiguous virtual memory stored in its latest banks. A Centauri A flyby damaged a lot of physical storage, but because the virtual is stored in a scattered redundancy algorithm, a lot of it can be rebuilt. A lot, but not all. Yes. Priority was given to redundancy for motivations and recent memories. Childhood memories were kept in a single copy. So far, the restoration has reached 52%. So your virtual has what would be called brain damage in humans. But it's not human. How often do you recall your childhood memories, Your Honor? Every day? No, I probably go months at a time without thinking about them. Yet you live by many motivations and attitudes formed in your childhood. It's the same with Ashcroft Virtual. My recent memories, general motivations, and underlying attitudes have multiple copies aboard the firewall. They will survive, and they're all that's needed. It's not me, but it's functional. You hope. Yes. Suppose, just suppose, your virtual survives in a functional condition. What do you have planned? In six days, it will lose another 8,000 miles per second in Centauri B's atmosphere and emerge with the velocity of a long-period comet. After another 32 days, it will aerobrake at the top of Wells' atmosphere and enter a highly elongated orbit around the planet. So the firewall will orbit Wells and map its surface, I asked. For ten orbits, yes. With each orbit, it will skim the outer atmosphere, lose some velocity. On the tenth orbit, the firewall will do a deep atmospheric entry and impact the surface. And be destroyed? No. Please, explain. The firewall has no parachutes. The shield is light and tough. It will hit the ground at 400 miles per hour, which is nothing compared to surviving over 10,000 Gs in the atmosphere of Centauri stars. If the firewall survives, it will continue to give us pictures from Wells' surface. It may even give us our first view of life on another Earth-like planet. There was more, but for sheer impact, there was nothing in the same class as that revelation. Ashcroft's Facebook rating passed a billion likes, which in turn generated to even more likes. His virtual had double that figure. I released him to a local court and recommended bail because he was not a flight risk. He was certainly not in any position to reoffend. I then filed my findings with the American judge and recommended that no further proceedings commence until after the landing on Wells. On the sixth day after the first arrow break, the firewall speared through the atmosphere of Centauri B. This was a slightly gentler encounter than before, but the circuitry aboard the probe was already stressed and damaged. By now the Argo was well outside the Centauri system, and its telescope could show no more than sunspots on Centauri B's disk. Again we endured a very anxious half-hour while the firewall cooled down. Firewall survived. Performing repairs. 23. 
Those words got 2 billion likes on Facebook, but the number told us that three-quarters of what had defined Ashcroft Virtual had been damaged. The data integrity percentages began to climb again, but much more slowly than before. Ashcroft Virtual was like a human emerging from a coma, gradually recovering from two horrible accidents. In the weeks that followed, the parts of the virtual that had been restored only climbed to 57%. The aero break in Will's atmosphere was an anticlimax compared to what had happened at the two stars. The shield lost enough speed to go into a parabolic orbit that reached the top of the atmosphere to 100,000 miles from the planet. Data trickled in through the pathetically slow link. Wells had a magnetic field, weaker than Earth's, yet strong enough to protect it from the solar wind. The surface pressure was a third that of Earth's sea surface, but oxygen made up a quarter of the atmosphere. Wells was Earth-like, but not entirely Earth-like. With each orbit, the firewall dipped deeper into the atmosphere and lost a little more speed. Finally, it fell. Everyone was expecting to have to wait hours for Ashcroft Virtual's damage control subroutines to do their work. But after only seconds, the hoped-for message came through. Firewall survived. 47. It was vastly better than we could have hoped for. The virtual had lost just 10% of its surviving memory in that final trauma. Although over half its memories were gone, Ashcroft Virtual was conscious and functional. That got 5 billion likes, which still ranks as the most popular news item in history. At the ludicrously slow speed and 10-bowed rate, Ashcroft Virtual began to transmit a picture. The firewall had plunged into the side of a low hill beside one of the small, shallow seas. Not much more than its camera and solar cells were above the surface, but nobody was complaining. In the foreground were bushes with leaves-like lacework amid wild grass. Some of the grass was cropped short as if it had been grazed. This had everyone almost insane with excitement. Track 15 degrees left of center, then focus for maximum resolution on the cropped grass, Jackson instructed. Her words were converted to plain text and fed into the entangled block. The answer came back at once. No. This was an ugly moment. It was followed by an exceedingly long five-second pause. Firewall, is there a problem? No. Then track 15 degrees left of center and do a close-up on the grass. It shows signs of grazing. There may be animal life on the planet. This time, Jackson double-checked the speech-to-text conversion before feeding it into the entangled block. An utterly tantalizing reply came back. Grazing animals visible. Priority! Take a contingency picture of the animals and transmit. No. Firewall, explain why you cannot take up the picture as instructed. No more pictures or data will be sent. Firewall, please clarify. Why will there be no more images and data? Humanity cancelled interstellar exploration. Humanity deserves no more pictures or data. I stood back and watched as the drama played out. That is one highly perceptive virtual, I thought. It's given us mysteries instead of wonders. I kept my opinion well and truly to myself. There were hurried, hushed conversations and consultations. Finally, a decision was made. Try the kill key again, said Jackson. The key was fed into the entangled block. Invalid key, was the reply. The key was transmitted another five times before Jackson gave up. We already knew the kill switch key was invalid, said Ashcroft. All the kill switch routines must have been damaged. Impossible, said Jackson. There are thousands of copies of the kill switch all through the data lattices, so at least one should be okay. You must have changed the key. What is the new key? 
I don't know. Virtuals can't function without a kill switch. It's in their design. By law, I added. Jackson turned on me. I want a court order for a Veritor extraction, she shouted. Mine probes are a Class A privacy intrusion, I replied. I don't have that sort of authority. You need a judge. Will someone find me a judge? A judge was found, the intrusion was authorized, and Ashcroft was probed. He had been telling the truth. He did not know any new key. The odds of all kill switches being damaged are about the same as winning the intersystem lottery, said Jackson as she stared at the results from the Veritor extraction. But some people do win the lottery, one of the control crew pointed out. That single image from Wells' surface was enough to support a thousand PhDs, but it was all that we ever got. Every hour there had been a single pulse from Firewall which told us Ashcroft Virtual was still alive. Alive and looking out over the secrets and wonders of Wells, I thought. Alive and sharing nothing with us. The Virtual was bombarded with pleas, threats, inducements, reproaches, and guesses at the kill switch key. But nothing worked. Needless to say, a lot of people blamed the original Ashcroft. There was a trial, but Ashcroft argued that he was not the same personality as his Virtual, who now controlled the firewall. After all, Ashcroft Virtual had only half of his memories. He went on to declare that he would have transmitted all the data and pictures possible if he had been on the firewall. Verometer tests confirmed that he was telling the truth. His rating steadied at a billion likes and 200 million dislikes. I predicted the trial would become mired in legal technicalities, and that was what happened. Ashcroft had too much public support to be found guilty, and it was public money that had built the Argo in the first place. A verdict of guilty would have ruined careers and brought down governments, so a verdict would never be delivered. Six months after the firewall landed, Jackson and I met to sort out some of the media rights for the holocausts in which we both appeared. Documentaries about the Argo and the firewall were bringing in substantial amounts of money because of the sudden revival of interest in deep space exploration. We met at the Café Plaza on the old Berkeley campus. Our table was shaded by redwoods planted before Argo had ever been designed. It was not the first time that we had met since the establishment hearing, but it was our very first private meeting. I had prepared for it with more care than the control captain realized. Why did Ashcroft Virtual do it? I asked as we were finishing up. Why did it really do it? Why ask me? Said Jackson wearily. I was as surprised as anyone when he and his Virtual went rogue. The Veritometer confirmed that Ashcroft was concealing something during my hearing, and in all his testimony since. All of us are concealing something, said Jackson. We all have harmless personal secrets of a sensitive nature. Some of us more than others. The law allows for it, she pointed out quite correctly. There was silence between us for a time. Jackson sipped nervously at her coffee, suspecting something. I went through my notes. Then I handed her a smart print. I've done some of my own research, I said, as she looked down at it. Like that 20th century movie director Alfred Hitchcock once said about murder, if you want to do a good job, do it yourself. This is a car park at a conference center in Geneva, a security camera took the image. Now look here. I traced my finger around one corner and invoked area enlargement. A couple could now be seen embracing against a sleek share car. The registration code was visible. The faces of the lovers were not. Would you like me to read out who the share car was registered to? I asked. 
Jackson studied the image and data specs more closely. The date is August 17, 2198, she commented, though there was a tremor in her voice. Ridiculous. Nobody keeps computer car records for half a century. The Swiss do. Jackson froze completely while she conducted some sort of internal debate with herself. Then she let the printout fall to the table and put a hand over her eyes. Okay, okay, no more games, she sighed. Ashcroft and I were married, but to other people. Moral imperative was sweeping the world, and Equilibration was trying to shut down the Argo Project and turn the starship into a theme park to celebrate waste control. So, politically speaking, it was a bad time for scandal involving the control captain and one of her officers? Correct. How long did it last? Believe it or not, this monitor caught part of our very first night. After that, well, it's still going, occasionally. An affair concealed with meticulous care, decades of pillow talk, I said. Years to plan what to do about Wells. Wrong, Mr. Harper. Totally wrong. Wells was an opportunity, a tool, something to get humanity back on the path to the stars. If the Harpy One probe showed that Wells was truly Earth-like and supported life, it deserved a closer look more than any other planet in the galaxy. We spent so many nights in each other's arms, cursing the spinelessness that had cut us off from the stars. Then we came up with a plan. We invented stellar arrow-breaking. In bed? Why not? Thoughts wander tongues are loose. We would not live to see the Gleesey encounter. So with Wells as the alternative, no contest. If Harpy One showed that Wells was just another version of Mars, the firewall could still be left on a course for Gleesey. But Wells was everything you hoped it would be. Yes. So you plan to dangle it in front of us, then snatch it away? No, no. We thought the virtual would send back all the data and pictures it possibly could, and that the wonders of Wells would lure humanity back into deep space. Instead, Ashcroft Virtual punished humanity and shamed us into doing the same thing. Yes, yes, because of the damage, Virtual Ashcroft is all motivation, but limited memories. It's no longer human, so perhaps it thinks more clearly than humans, like me or Charles. Do you have any children, Mr. Harper? A son, thirteen. Do you know what a thrill it is when your child turns out to be better than you at something? Yes. Jason has a shelf full of swimming trophies, but I swim like a brick. This is going to sound strange, but I think of Ashcroft Virtual as the child that Charles and I never had. It's turned out wiser than either of us, and I'm very proud of it. Argo 2 is planned already, and it will be bigger, faster, and tougher. Thirty years, Mr. Harper. In 30 years, we will have a fleet of orbiters, floaters, and crawlers delivered to Wells, while another probe loops Centauri A and goes on to Gleesey 581. The harmonizers are backing us. Do you know about them? A new technological movement, I said. They say the universe is burning resources all the time, so humanity is fighting nature by striving for total static balance. That makes exploration and expansion morally okay. Jackson nodded. Argo 2 will happen, so 30 years after the launch, there will be a telepresence tour of Wells. I'm not yet 80, so with modern healthcare, I might even be alive to book for one. I took the print out of the car park from her, tapped the black bar at the top, and said, Clear. The image vanished.
Jackson blinked, then stared at me. What's this about? She asked. I generated the images of you and Ashcroft, then superimposed them on a genuine security camera record that showed your share car. You mean that wasn't us? She gasped. No. I gamble that the details of your early courtship with Ashcroft would become blurred in your memory over fifty years. Jackson bristled and her eyes bulged. She flung the remains of her coffee at me. I did not move. She raised her cup to fling it as well. Don't you want to know how I knew? I asked. If you throw that cup, you'll never find out. Don't you play that Ashcroft on Wells game with me, she said between clenched teeth. It worked for him. The cup fell from her fingers and shattered on the pavement. A student waiter hurried over and cleaned up the pieces. Jackson sat with her arms folded tightly while he worked. Sitting like that, she reminded me of my son. I feared that our meeting was over, but hoped otherwise. Jackson sat glaring at me for three or four minutes, quite literally. Try sitting with a really angry person for as long as that, watching each other intently but saying nothing. It's quite a harrowing experience. Finally, she softened just a little. Okay, Mr. Tricky, how did you know about Charles and me in the first place? Long, long ago, someone wrote a pattern recognition application that scans the faces of delegates and holovistas taken at conferences, I replied, feeling very relieved. It picks up on little clues given by couples who have uh, come to a romantic arrangement. Seduced each other. Yes, and it's accurate with about four couples out of five. Fortunately, the inventor was having a secret affair, so the app was never released. Was it you? No, I just have access to it. Personal favor from the inventor. Very decent of whoever wrote it. An app like that could really take the fun out of life. How did Ashcroft kill the switch key? He changed the key, but he did it with a random key generator. He didn't look at the new key, but he showed it to you. She buried her face in her hands for a moment, then rubbed her temples. Like Charles said, you're good. There was a risk the virtual would not survive, but the firewall would, so I had to have the kill switch key available, just in case. Manual control through that pathetic emergency link was clunky, but it was better than nothing. You put on a good act, demanding his mind be searched, I said, hoping she would take my words as a compliment. You gambled that no one would think of searching your mind. And the gamble paid off, very nearly. So even now you can take over firewall and force the entanglement transmission of pictures from Wells' surface? Yes. Yet you don't. Ashcroft Virtual is my child. My very clever child. It realized that a camera on Wells sending out pictures to Earth like some sort of holovista reality show would satisfy humanity. Why spend hundreds of trillions of dollars on another starship when we could have a view of Wells' surface? Ashcroft Virtual turned out to be a good judge of human nature, I said, nodding. At last I had the truth, and it was a very powerful truth indeed. It was like winning a particularly difficult game of chess. There was no prize, however. So, now what? asked Jackson, forcing the words out with obvious reluctance. What do you mean? About me and Charles. None of anybody else's business. What? she exclaimed. I'll say nothing about any of this. But... Why? This is top-value sensation news. The kill switch key could be ripped from my mind within seconds of an electrode cap going on. You could give a view of Wells back to humanity. You could get over a billion Facebook likes. That would boost your career to interworld judge level. I'm just a bureaucrat who dreams, Control Captain. 
Fame and power do not interest me. I'm not an explorer and I'm not a scientist. All I can do is hold the door open while those who are far better at exploring and discovering get on with the job. That's enough for me. But, but I still don't understand. I handed another printout to her. I had been expecting that sort of reaction and had come prepared. The picture showed three men, two of them wearing very archaic spacesuits. Do you know who these are? I asked. Apollo astronauts. The spacesuits are pretty distinctive, said Jackson. The resolution is bad. I can't recognize the faces. The man in the foreground is Neil Armstrong. Behind him is Mike Collins. And the date is 16th of July, 1969. Can you tell me about the third man? It's not Aldrin. He would have been wearing a spacesuit. The guy has a military cap and overalls, and he's carrying gear of some sort. I give up. Who is he? No idea. Jackson stared at me, uncertain whether or not to be annoyed again. I assume there's a point to all this, she said. That third man knew who he was, and I'll bet his family had that picture framed and displayed in the living room for decades. His descendants probably still have that picture on the wall. He held the door open, control captain. He was not an astronaut, hero, or a brilliant engineer, but a tiny, tiny way he contributed to putting the first men on the moon. Now here I am, holding the door open for the whole of humanity to explore wells with Argo 2. Should I take the pressure off and give us one pathetic camera on firewall? I don't think so. Give people wonders and they'll sit back, open a beer, and watch. You want people to get up and do something, you must give them mysteries. I stood up to go. Jackson stood too, waving her hands in circles and looking like a mass of gratitude, relief, and confusion. Best to just shake hands, Control Captain. Don't do anything emotional like hugging me, I said. There are always cameras. Everywhere. We... Charles and I plan to come out with the truth when the first follow-up probes land on Wells, she said as we shook hands. When we do the declaration, would you like me to mention that you, well, held the door open for us? That was unexpected, and I had to think about it for a moment. Fame was beckoning. Yet what had I done to deserve it? Jackson, Ashcroft, and Ashcroft Virtual were the real heroes. Thank you, but no, I decided. That seemed to cause her genuine distress. Please, you must let me do something for you. Would you like one of Well C's named Harper? I can arrange that. The Harper C. It was a tempting thought, but I shook my head. Why not make your big declaration with Ashcroft in front of a magistrate? I suggested instead. I'll make sure I'm available. And that's all you want? Yes. I'll be in the background, but visible, and that's enough for me. I walked away through the old university, feeling very light on my feet. The day was warm, the sun dappled by the trees, and the scene could not have been more pleasant or mundane. Yet I was also on wells, struggling for breath in the thin air, teeth chattering with the cold. I was holding a door open, and beyond it was the glassy, literal, and calm silver sea. I was the happiest man alive. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Sean's. Sean, what can I say? A huge thank you. If you like any of Sean's work, we've played some of Sean's before as well, and you can find them over on the Fantasy Farfetch Fables as well. Don't forget to go and sign up for that. You know, that's all free as well. That's doing cracking, to be quite honest, as well as the other ones. 
So don't forget, a couple of weeks' time, banging on the door of the donations bandwagon, I will be. Until then, just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgement? Tune in next week for the next exciting instalment of This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.